1985 to pray about coming to this ministry. Uh, I sat right here on the front row where I still sit because the piano was over here. And uh, the the family that sat on the second row behind me was, was John's family. And he has three brothers and his mom. So they took up whole section. And I got to know them. John's the oldest. And he and his brother Greg, who's been in our church before, played the piano for us. Um, became very, very dear to me and still are. So I'm so glad you guys are here. Love you so much. And Miss Roxanne and your young kids, love you guys. And you mean a lot to me. We'll look at Psalm 32 this morning. I think that it will be a, a help to you. Tell you a story. Years ago, I had been called by a friend of mine and asked me if I would uh, consider doing the funeral of another, of a friend of his. And I knew his friend because I had played football with him, but I was not especially close with him. He was two years older than I was. And I said, well, well, sure, I would do that. And he told me about the situation and that he was near death. So he lived a little ways away. So I drove out to his house and uh, visited with his wife for a while in the living room. And, of course, he was in the bedroom. And he was in a, a semi-comatose state. Wasn't responding to anybody, but the doctors couldn't tell if he was hearing. And medical doctors will tell you that the first sense developed in the womb is the hearing. And the last sense to go in death is, is the hearing. And that's why I'm always careful when I'm in a hospital room. You ought to be always uh, about what you say in the room. You don't know what they can hear and what they don't hear. And then on the positive side, I'll talk to people. Even if they think uh, or others think they can't hear. You don't know what they can and can't hear. So I bend over and talk to them and pray with them and for them and so forth. So after I had finished talking to this man's wife that I had been asked to do his service, I had not seen him in uh, about 40 years. And uh, he was a rough guy. Had a hard life. And so... uh, Went back in the room, me and his wife and the friend, that his best friend, that had asked me to do the service. And there was a crying, weeping in there as this man, the cancer, had begun to do its work. And he had lost a lot of weight. I hadn't seen him in a long time. Big, tough football player. Gotten a scholarship to an SEC school and played football there. So I got down on my knees. His wife got on the other side of the bed beside him, held his hand. I got down on my knees beside the bed, and I I talked to him and uh, introduced myself. He never responded. Told me about my dad. My dad had driven the bus for the football team and just told about uh, some coaches and just said some, talked about life. And then I called his name. I said, you know, Uh, The reason I'm here is I want to talk to you about your soul. So that when you die, that you will know for sure that you're going to heaven. 
And there in that uh, semi-comatose state with his wife softly weeping beside him in the bed holding him and his friend over my shoulder crying behind me. And me kneeling there holding his hand, I gave him the gospel. And I told him, I said, I'm going to pray and if you would like to receive Christ as your Savior and uh, you mean this, you just you don't have to pray out loud, but in your heart, to God's heart, you just pray and ask God to save you, and He'll forgive you of your sins and take you to heaven. And I led in prayer. I, I didn't know if he heard anything. I'd ask earlier, I said, is he responsive? She said, he hasn't responded in a day to anybody. He hasn't blinked, he hasn't moved, he hasn't nodded, he hasn't done anything. And so uh, after I finished the prayer, I said, if, if you heard me and you, and you did that and you received Jesus as your Savior, would you, would you squeeze my hand? And he did. You know, there's some things that, that are hopeful thinking and, you know, you, would it, did he do that sometimes? But it wasn't like that. He did. And it was obvious to her, in fact, she, she pretty much lost it when she saw that he had done that because there had been no response. And he'd heard the presentation of Jesus and how that Jesus came to save sinners. About five or six hours after that, he passed away. A couple of days after that, I came to do the funeral. It was the roughest, roughest crowd I don't mean that in a in a judgmental way, just in a in a factual way that I'd ever ever been a part of in terms of a funeral, and uh, it was a great privilege to do so. The family felt like it would be appropriate to bury him the way that he lived, and so he was lying there in the casket with a beer in his hand, uh, and that's the way he was buried with a a beer can in his hands. Uh, and uh, as I recall, there were like nine songs that were played. And they were all canned music, all CDs and so forth. And uh, some of them were, in my opinion, you know, not really conducive to, to the mood, but because of, of, of where he was from and so forth and, and what he had loved and just heavy, uh, heavy metal music. And um, so it was my task to, to conduct the funeral in the midst of, uh, of these things. So I got up and read the obituary, read some scripture, and, and then shared about my relationship with him and how that I hadn't seen him in decades and what I didn't know about him. And they were, they were respectful but they were hopeful for something. And I wanted to share the gospel with them. And basically the way that I share the gospel is I just shared the story of what I just told you. How that just a few nights earlier I'd come into his house and that he wasn't responsive for a day. And how I got down on my knees beside his bed and I took his hand in mine and I went through the whole story in greater detail than I gave you even. And I gave the message and I said, if you would like to receive that, would you, would you, if you did that, would you squeeze my hand? And I said, he did. 
And when I did that, the crowd, and there were probably 300 people there, they erupted in applause just instantaneously. It was almost electric. They, they were hopeful that something had happened. You know, no matter what people say or how tough their exterior is, they would like to know that they can live forever. They would like to know that their sins can be forgiven. They would like to know that their record has been cleaned and cleared. And I want to ask you a question this morning. What does the Bible teach about forgiveness? How can one be forgiven? Can we know that we're forgiven? So I want to give you just a simple Bible message this morning on forgiveness, your greatest need. Forgiveness, your greatest need. And uh, you can track along with me. I'll give you some scriptures here from Psalm 32. Give you several thoughts here. First thought I'm going to give you is simply this, is that everybody needs to be forgiven. Everybody needs to be forgiven. Now, in the Bible, in Psalm 32, there are three expressions of the word sin. Now, most people don't, we use the word sin, but we kind of apply our own definition to it. And the reason we need to be forgiven is that we have sinned. But in the Bible here, notice these expressions. Look at Psalm 32, look at verse 1. You may want to underline these words. You may have before because I've taught you these words before. But look at it. Blessed is he whose, and here's the first word, transgression. That's the first expression of sin. I'll come back to that in a moment. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin, that's the one we use mostly, that's the second expression, is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Iniquity is the third one. So in verse 1, you have transgression. Verse 1, you have sin. And then in verse 2, you have iniquity. Now move down to verse 5. Again, David, and he's confessing his sins. He's committed adultery and murder, and he's confessing his sins to God here. I acknowledge my sin. Okay, there's that word. And mine iniquity, there's the second expression of sin, iniquity, have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions, plural, and there's the third expression. Sin, iniquity, transgressions. Everybody needs to be forgiven. Now the word sin means to miss the mark. That means that you, you can't be perfect that means that uh, no matter how hard I, I try to have a perfect day, I'm not going to. The word transgression means, the word trans means to cross over. It, it has the idea of when you have a transportation company, it means to cross a line. That's what it means. So here's what happens. When God has a line, he says, do not cross that line. And I, I transgress that line. That's a transgression. And here's the difference in sin and transgression. Transgression is intentional. Sometimes you sin and you didn't mean to. You're trying to do good. The Bible says to him that doeth knoweth to do good and does it not. To him it's sin. So when, when I, I know to do better but I don't do it, that's sin. Transgression is different. That's when I intentionally sin and I violate the will of God, God's standard. Iniquity uh, is this. It, it's inward crookedness. 
It's that, it's that nature in me, that fallen nature, that crooked nature in me that causes me to do transgressions and causes me to sin. So iniquity is in every single person in this room. You were born with it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, our selfish way. We want to do what we want to do because of our iniquity. And because I'm iniquitous, because of my iniquities. And you'll see this in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Because of my sin, my iniquity, my old nature, my corrupt nature, I transgress. And God says, don't, don't do that. Well, I think I will anyhow. That's because of iniquity. And now also sin, where even though I try my best, I still do not meet God's standards. Now I want you to give you a couple of thoughts about this matter of everybody needs to be forgiven. Because everybody in here has a sin nature. Every person that is born has iniquity. And let me illustrate that. Some people, you've heard this said before, when a child is born, they're like a blank piece of paper. And everything that is written on that piece of paper is going to determine their destiny. Well, there's a, there's a kernel of truth in that. And part of, part of heresy, the, the danger of it is it always had a kernel of truth. So you, you don't just swallow the truth. You don't just eat the fish and spit out the bone. You, you swallow everything. And so that's not fully true. We, we are not a blank piece of paper. We're, we're born with iniquity. Now, if you've ever had kids, you know, you know this. And everybody is a child, and you know this anyway. But especially if you're a parent, you don't have to teach your kids to do wrong. You have to teach them to do right. Children, when they're born, they have a magnet to transgression. They have a magnet to sin. Now, why is that? Because they were born with iniquity. Where did they get it from? They got it from their parents. And their parents got it from their parents. You got it from your grandparents, your great-grandparents, all the way back to Adam and Eve. Everybody needs to be forgiven. And let me give you some thoughts about this. And, and I've tried to lay this out almost like a legal argument. I, um, as, as a lawyer, would to get you to think about this? First of all, God is holy. God is righteous. You know, that's one of the words that, that is repugnant to our iniquitous nature because it uncovers our sin. Uh, we, we've even have taken that word holy and, and think it's a, it's a bad word. Well, he, he's holier than thou. Did you know that uh, in the Old Testament several times that this expression is used? The beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness. Uh, holiness in, in, in its perfection is not stern. It is not ugly. It is not brutal. Ho- holiness reflects the heart of God. And, and we, have, we have no idea how much of an affront we are to a holy, righteous God because of our sin. God is perfect. And we all need to be forgiven because we are not perfect. God is holy. God is righteous. And God must judge us because of our sin. Watch this. The Bible says in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 18. Now, watch this. It has both sides of the character of God. God is perfect. Watch this. 
The Lord is long-suffering. I like that. God is very patient with me. The Lord is of great mercy. And He is. And I love that. I love the mercy of God. He's so compassionate with me. The Lord forgives. Isn't this interesting? Iniquity and transgression. Isn't that interesting? See these words? God will forgive these things in your life. I like this verse. Don't you like this? God is patient. He's long-suffering. He has great mercy. He forgives iniquity and transgression. I like this. This is the heart of God. But there's not a period there. And God will by no means clear the guilty. See, God is also holy. So God God is loving, He's merciful, but He's also righteous. And God is righteous, but He's also merciful. And because God is, is perfect and God is holy, He loves sinners. And everybody, everybody needs to be forgiven. God is holy. Then the second thought under here is that sin brings guilt. Sin makes us guilty. Now, when I was in college, I had several psychology classes. They teach it in high school. In fact, even though I'm an old man, they, they had uh, psychology in high school at Butler High School where I went. But I didn't take it. But one of the things that they teach in kind of psych one-on-one, especially as Sigmund Freud kind of came up with these ideas, is something called a guilt complex. And uh, you'll tell people, well, the reason they're so down on themselves or they just don't have this, they have this problem, they don't have enough self-esteem, is they have a guilt complex. Well, the reason people, here, here, let me make it simple. The reason people have a guilt complex is they're guilty. And, and you cannot medicate a person and change their heart until they realize and they admit that they're guilty. I did it. And you can go to every psychiatrist, every psychologist, every doctor, and convince yourself that I'm better than I am, that I haven't done wrong. But you are. You've done wrong. God is holy, and you're not. And what happens is that brings guilt into our life. And God says, I gave you that guilt as a gift to drive you to God so that you could find cleansing, you could find forgiveness, you could find a new life. Now, here's what happens. When I sin, my conscience becomes uneasy. Now, there's an old... Uh, movie, Pinocchio, where that uh, Jiminy Cricket, uh, I think he said it in one of the songs, he said, let your conscience be your guide. But again, that, that's one of those half-truths. You're, you're, an educated conscience can be your guide. Your conscience is not the law. Your conscience reveals what you believe about the law. Now, God wrote to the people... Who They were the Gentiles. These are people that did not know the law of God. And here's what he said in Romans 2, 14 and 15. I think these are on the screen for you. Watch this. He said, for within Gentiles which have not the law. That means they don't know the Bible. Specifically, they don't know the Ten Commandments. They don't know right from wrong. So here are pagan people. They don't know the law. But by nature, they do the things contained in the law. 
In other words, when they lie, they're guilty, even as children. And, uh, and they know they ought to do better. So by, even though they don't, know, they, they don't know these things, they've never grown up in church, but they still know something's wrong with me. These people, that is these people, having not the law, they don't know Ten Commandments or whatever. They're a law to themselves. Because they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Because God has put that in your heart. And here it is. Their conscience. Also bearing witness. So your conscience bears witness to the law if you've not done if you've not turned it off or tried to change it. So your conscience bears witness to the truth in your heart. And here's what it does. It does one of two things. Watch this. <clears throat> and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. Whenever you do wrong, when I do wrong, <clears throat> if your conscience is educated biblically according to the way God wants it to, and you haven't damaged it, it will either accuse you and you spoke you spoke to your wife harshly. You were wrong. You should not have done that. And your conscience will accuse you, or it will excuse you when people accuse you that, hey, you you were wrong. He said, No. I have a clear conscience about that. I've used that expression before, not a whole lot, about some things. No, I have a clear conscience about that. My conscience is clear. I don't mean to be self-righteous because there's a lot of other things I can't say that about. But my conscience is strong in that area. And so when your conscience is clear, people can accuse you, but you can excuse yourself from the accusation. That's the function of your conscience based on the law that God has put in your heart. So this morning, if, if you have guilt... First of all, if, if you don't sense guilt, you're not going to seek forgiveness. And uh, when you have a post-Christian generation or post-truth, the truth is still there, but people have rejected the truth. People aren't interested in Christianity. They're not interested in the Bible. Because what we've done is we have medicated people or we have rejected truth that there's no such thing as truth. Uh, let me give you something that I've heard over and over and over again, and this is a lie. You young people, listen to me, because you're going to hear this over and over again. And your antenna ought to go up immediately and say, that's a lie. Because it is a lie. And he here's the phrase, just two words. Your truth. Your truth. Well, you need to stand up for your truth. There's no such thing. There's the truth. The truth applies to everybody. There's no such thing as what is true for you is not true for me. There is the truth. It's not your truth. And these little subtle nuances that we've used in, in the English language have even, and I think the enemy has come in, Satan has come in, to swatch the conscience of people so that they can say, well, hey, that's just your, that's your truth. This is my truth. Listen, guilt, God gave us guilt to bring him to himself. Let me illustrate. When Adam and Eve, who were in a perfect environment, sometimes people say, well, <clears throat> the, reason, the reason I'm, I'm this way is because of my parents. No, no, 
No, now, you know, you, you have imperfect parents and they may have done you wrong. They may have, in fact, done you very wrong. But you're still responsible for your reaction. And Adam and Eve were in a perfect environment. And they had the perfect parent. And they still sinned. But their conscience became uneasy. Because they knew they had sinned and they were guilty. Watch this. Genesis 3 and verse 8. And they, Adam and Eve, heard that they had already sinned. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve hid themselves. Isn't this interesting? Before they were walking with God, now they're hiding themselves. I don't want to have anything to do with God. You know why? They're guilty. So they're hiding from God, from the presence of the Lord, amongst the trees of the garden. And I love this. I love this. And the Lord God called unto Adam. He will always do that. He will always do that. He loves you. And he said unto him, where art thou? Now here's a clue for parents. Okay. An accusation hardens the will, but a question stirs the conscience. You see this a number of times in the Bible. God knew what they'd done. He knew they'd sinned. But God didn't come in and say, I know what you did. So where have you been? Remember in the next that's chapter three. Remember the next chapter. Remember when Cain killed his brother Abel. Remember what he he didn't say. I know what you did. You must say, where's your brother? An accusation hards a will. A question serves the conscience. And so God comes in. He knows what they did. They're guilty. He says, "Where where are you?" In other words, it, this was not a request for information. This was a request for. For confession, would you come out and say, Lord, we're hiding, we're guilty. And he said, Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now notice the next word or the next line. And God said, who told thee that thou was naked? You know who told them? They did. It was their conscience. A sin. Listen. Whenever, whenever you sin morally the first time, you remember it. Because it marks your conscience. But when you do it again and again and again and again, it sears your conscience. Until you can't remember it anymore. You need to cultivate a sensitive conscience. But God gave you this guilt to drive you back to himself. And the third thought is simply this. That it's your guilt that brings your awareness of your need to be forgiven. People don't want to be forgiven because they, they don't think they need to be forgiven. Oh, enough with this guilt. It's going to destroy your, your self-esteem. And that's another thing that you're taught. Now, I do believe in a, in a level of self-acceptance. Romans 12, 3 says, don't think of yourself above of what you ought to think. Okay? But that's not this, this esteeming yourself highly. We're to have a God esteem, not a self-esteem. And so we've been educated and taught that we're important and <clears throat> other people aren't. And so all of our problems are, are based in our self-esteem. 
And we don't feel like I need to be forgiven. But we do need to be forgiven. In the early 70s, there was a book published. I remember I was out in another state with my mom. And I've always been a reader. I was in my early teenage years. And I saw it on the edge of a coffee table. Her best friend had it. I picked it up. and It was too much for me to read. I, I've never read it. But I never forgot the title. It was a very famous book. It sold 15 million copies. And it was kind of a, one of the early prototypical self-help books. It was called, I'm Okay, You're Okay. Some of you may have read it. But here's the thing. It became a catchphrase in our culture. The title of the book did. I'm okay, you're okay. And here's, here's the deal. I remember when I looked at that book, I didn't read the book, but the title captured me. And I was a Christian. I'd only been a Christian about four or five years. But I knew, listen, I knew intuitively God was, that's not, that's not correct. And I could, if you told me to explain it to you, I couldn't tell you. I can now. That, that's not correct. Because I knew when I looked at it, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. Now, some people would have said, no, hold it, hold it, Rick. No, no, you're okay. You just have a low self-esteem. The truth is, is it's not I'm okay, you're okay. It's I'm a mess, you're a mess. Because until you realize that, that you're a mess, and I'm a mess, we're never going to seek forgiveness, or we're never going to seek help. And then the opposite of that is we all become our, our own gods, little G. Everybody needs to be forgiven. Number two, everybody can be forgiven. Everybody can be forgiven. No matter where you've been, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God can forgive you. God loves you. Satan will lie to you. And he will say, well, you know, what you've done, there's no forgiveness for. Months ago, I was out here in the parking lot with a young man that had crossed a lot of lines in his life. And I said in my car... and. I went through the gospel with him, explained some things. And I pled with him to, to become a Christian. And uh, he wanted to, but he said, I can't. He said, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. You know, one of the lies the devil tells you is, is you're not good enough. I was talking to one young man in a restaurant one time, and and he was lost. He was not a Christian. He, he had never been forgiven. Christ, Christianity is not about perfection. It's about direction. It's about God saving you, clearing your record. And then you begin to grow. And you begin to grow and become more Christ-like. And then one day you go to heaven and he take, gets all the kinks out of your life. But you're not going to become perfect immediately. But your record becomes perfect. But I was in this restaurant with this young man. And I was... I said, boy, I'd like for you to be saved. I talked to him a number of times. And he said, well, I'm, I'm not ready. I said, well, tell me why. Can you tell me the reason why? And he said, well, I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to be a Christian. And I said, well, let me, let me postulate a, a circumstance. I probably didn't say postulate. I said, let me, let, me, let me give you a circumstance. I said, let's say that you, you are deathly ill. You're really, really sick. And I'm sitting here talking to you, 
and you you you've got this raging fever, and all of a sudden you're you're near uh, about to lose consciousness. Do you want me to call nine one one and get you to the emergency room real quick, or do you want me to say, well, you know what, you're sick. I better wait till you get well before I take you to the hospital. Or do you want to go see a doctor? He said, oh, I get it. I, I've never thought of it like that before. I said, yeah. I said, Jesus saves sinners. He does save good people. And the doctor is for sick people. Sick people go to the doctor. If, you, if you're not sick, you don't go to the doctor. And, and if you're not a sinner, you don't go to the Savior. And I said, for you to say, well, I'm too bad. I got to get better. That's antithetical to everything that Jesus came to do. Everybody has a night in their life. They have a season in their life that if they could, they would cut out. That they don't want people to know about. Everybody can be forgiven. The Bible says in Psalm 78 verse 38, but he, speaking of our God, being full of compassion. Are you, are you looking at that? He being full of compassion. Forgave their iniquity, and he destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away. Some of you may have had a bad experience in church. I've had some bad experiences. And you may have known a, a, an angry pastor, or you may have known an angry parent, or somebody that was religious in their life, and, and they were absent this. And there was no compassion. There was no tenderness. God's not that way. God is perfect. And He's holy and He's just. And He cannot, He, can, he by no means can clear the guilty. But He will if He will let you. If you will let Him. Because He's full of compassion. He cares for people. He wants to save you. Psalm 86 and verse 5. Thou, Lord, art good, ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy. Then the third thought I want to give you, and I'm going to go through these quickly. Forgiveness has benefits. You see, once you, once you get forgiven, not only do you get forgiveness, you discover a treasure house full of benefits. You realize, hey, this, this, this forgiveness thing is really good. There's nothing like it. What happens when you become a Christian? And becoming a Christian is simply being forgiven. I like that a bumper sticker. Most bumper stickers aren't good. They're not good theology. But this one is good, which is I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I'm forgiven. Now, when you are forgiven, God, God begins to change you. But that's true. It's, it's not about perfection. It's about direction. God changes you, and He puts you on the road towards growth and maturity. Let me give you some of these benefits once you've been forgiven. Number one is eternal life. God puts you on the path of eternal life. Or that I'm going to live forever in a place called heaven. Heaven is not based upon my merit. It's not based on my performance. It's not based on my church membership. It's not based on my baptism. It's not based on my confirmation. It's not based on what I don't do. It's not based on what I do. It's based on whether I've been forgiven or not. 
we were uh, in the cemetery this past week uh, visiting the grave of my father. 11 years ago this past week, my dad went to heaven. So my sister was in town. So she and my brother and myself, my mom, went to my dad's grave. And, and his body's resting there, but his spirit, his soul is with the Lord. And one day, when Christ comes, his soul and body's going to be reunited. And he, he, he's going to have a new body. And all, all that is based on forgiveness because of what Jesus did. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says this. It says, but God commendeth. That's just a big word that means he proved or he demonstrated But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. The word for, the preposition for means a substitute. He died for me. He died in my place. Jesus died for me. He died so I could be forgiven. As a nine-year-old boy, I was forgiven of my sins. And he changed my life. Another benefit of forgiveness is not only eternal life, but joy. Joy. The thief of joy is sin. Whenever, whenever you live in sin, you're never happy. It always robs you of joy. The presence of God brings you joy. Forgiven people are happy people. You have your Bible open to Psalm 32. Look with me there in verse 1. Psalm 32, 1. Blessed is he. The word blessed has the idea of joy, of happiness. Blessed, happy is he whose transgression, look at this. Happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. No, I'm not perfect, but my sin is covered. My transgressions, the times I intentionally crossed the line when God said, Don't do that, Rick. I said, No, I think I'm going to do it anyhow. God has forgiven me of my sins. And the Bible says I'm blessed. I'm happy. Another benefit of forgiveness is I have a relationship with God. I can know God personally. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It's not just coming into church and the the four walls of an institution. The reason we come to church is we have relationships with people. And they help us. Sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we need people to pray for us, to pray with us, to believe in us, to speak hope into us. My friend John uh, spoke some hopeful words in my life last night that I needed to hear. It was a blessing to me. I haven't seen him in a long time. But when I'm forgiven, I'm put into a a new relationship with the Lord. And, and I can know Him. I can have a clear conscience with Him. And walk with Him. There's a, there, there's a, corresponding, there's a corresponding relationship. What's this? Between, what's, this is the way I say this, between the awareness of the depth of your sin and the depth of your love for God. That's why some of you struggle with your, with your love for the Lord, is you don't see yourself as a bad person. You think you're a good person. 
But when you realize that I have sinned, that I have violated God's command, and He has forgiven me a great debt, then you love Him. A man named Simon, he was a Pharisee, had sponsored a dinner for Jesus. And a, a lady, she was perhaps a prostitute, the Bible doesn't say, but she was a sinful woman. She came into the house there and she had a, a vial of some very expensive perfume and she poured it upon Jesus' feet and she began to take her hair and begin to weep and wipe his feet with the perfume and with her tears. In Luke chapter 7, verse 47, Jesus said, Wherefore I say unto thee, he's speaking to Simon, the host, who was a Pharisee, about this woman. Her sins, which are many, everybody knew this woman and her reputation. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. Now watch this. To whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Maybe that's why you don't love the Lord much. Now here's, here's the deal. Simon sinned just as much as she did. It was just a different kind of sin. In fact, it may have been worse. He was proud, superior. At least he thought he was. Hers were sins of the flesh. His were sins of the spirit. Just different categories. And he could have loved much too. But he didn't see himself as a sinner. You see, when when God forgives me of my sin, my attitude toward God changes. Psalm 130 and verse 4. But there is forgiveness with thee, that is God, that thou mayest be feared. I fear the Lord. I respect the Lord. I'm in awe of the Lord. I love the Lord. Because He has forgiven me. There ought not be haughtiness in us. There ought not be a sense of entitlement. Because I don't deserve it. In the waning days of the Civil War, someone came to Abraham Lincoln and they asked him how he was going to treat the Southern soldiers after they had been defeated and returned to the Union. And the questioner fully expected President Lincoln would respond with a statement of vengeance. Instead, Lincoln told him, he said, I will treat them as if they had never been away. And that's what God does with us. God treats us as if we had never never done anything. Another benefit of forgiveness is peace. Is peace. My conscience is clear. Not because I'm perfect, but because I've been forgiven. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 20. The wicked are like the troubled sea which... When it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. I told our church last week, you can buy, you can buy sleep, but you can't buy rest. You can go buy some medicine to make you sleep, but you can't buy rest. Notice in your Bible in Psalm 32, look at verse one, Psalm 32, 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, 
whose sin is covered. Look what he does with our sins. He forgives our transgression. He covers our sins. Verse 2, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. He will not impute our iniquities unto us. He doesn't see me that way. And when I read these words, when I read these words, it gives me peace. It makes me know everything's okay between me and my father. I've had several of my children that have written me letters on Father's Day or my birthday or something. And many times they will put something like this in the letter. Dad, I did wrong. I did wrong. But you never brought it up again. I did wrong, but you never brought it up again. And that's what the heart of God does. He gives you peace. Now, earthly people may do that, but your Father, your Heavenly Father, doesn't. Here's what D.O. Moody said, great evangelist. He said, the voice of sin is loud, but the voice of forgiveness is louder. And then, I'm almost finished. Another benefit of forgiveness is security. Security. You see... The forgiveness that God gives is permanent. It's always there. Once you've been forgiven, you'll never be unforgiven. It's just always there. Back in the days of Jesus when the Romans were the only ones that crucified people, they would put you up on the cross, and before they put you on the cross, they would write your crimes. And then at the top of the cross, they would take a hammer and nail, and they would... They would hammer in the, the sign, and it would put what you were guilty of. That's why when Jesus, remember it said, he said he was the king of the Jews. They, the, the Jews said, they said he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, no, just put the king of the Jews, because that's the crime. They couldn't think of anything to put, so they put that. But other criminals on the side of Jesus, their crimes were written and they were nailed up there. So when people came, they said, oh, this, this is what this guy did. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14, the Bible says, Ye being dead in your sins and the circumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. Now watch this. Having forgiven you all trespasses. All trespasses. Forgiving you all trespasses. I don't care what you've done, where you've been. He's forgiven you all trespasses. Now, remember what I said about the nailing of the offense? Blotting out the handwriting. This is what Jesus did for you. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. He blotted out that when it was up on the cross. But the, but the offenses that were up on the cross of Jesus, metaphorically, they were my offenses. They were your offenses. And every person that has lived and ever will live from the time that we were born until we die, all of those billions and billions and billions of sins were put there. But they were blotted out. 
because of what Christ did. The last thing I want to give you, and we're going to dismiss, is that forgiveness is a gift of God. Forgiveness is a gift of God. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. You can't grovel for it. It's a gift. Here's how you get forgiven. Number one, you must confess your need to God. You must say, God, I need to be forgiven. And this is the hard part. Because here's what you're saying. Guilty. Guilty. I did it. I need to be forgiven. Psalm 32 and verse 5. The psalmist said, I acknowledged my sin. Have you ever done that? I acknowledge my sin. In my iniquity, have I not hid? I didn't hide it. It's open. And I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. Now, you don't need to tell them to people. But confess your sins. Specifically the sin of unbelief. There's an old saying that there's so many little lies that we believe. God helps those who help themselves. No, God helps those who can't help themselves. Confess your need. Number two, believe that Jesus is the Savior. Believe that He's the Savior. Acts chapter 13 and verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, the man Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to stop right here and say this, that you can do the first two things and not be forgiven. You can confess your need and say guilty. And you can believe that Christ is the Savior because the devil believes these things. But here's, here, here's the clincher. you got to do this. Number three, you must receive the gift of salvation. Receive it. Receive it. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the gift of God, God has given a gift and it's in His person, the Son, Jesus Christ. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you ever received Jesus? Have you ever trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? It's not being baptized. It's not walking down an aisle. It's not even praying a prayer. It's not what you do. It's what He has done for you. Have you ever received Christ as your Savior? I did that on February the 18th, 1968. I was nine years old, just a few months before my 10th birthday. And I asked Jesus to be my Savior. And I trusted Him. And He forgave me of all my sins. And He changed my life. I opened... The message this morning and I told about a visit that I made with a, a friend that I hadn't seen in decades and that he, he got saved on his deathbed hours on a miraculous conversion and God had mercy on him. I believe I'll see him in heaven one day. All he, all he had to give was a wasted life. He never did anything for God. All he did was use his name in vain. And I'm not being mean to him. He did. That was his life. He was a profane man. That's all he did. 
That's all he had. But God said, I'll take that. I'll take that. But there's a flip side. I was in a hospital, and I could tell other stories like this, but I'll just select one. I was in the hospital with a a man that had influenced my life. And uh, he was very sick, and he was scared. And he wouldn't live long after this particular occasion. And I went in, and I said, I hadn't seen him in a long time. And I introduced myself. And he had a tube down his throat. He couldn't talk. I said, hey, you remember me? He nodded his eyes. He nodded. So I, I just came up here. This is an ICU unit back in the back. I said, I just came up here to tell you that I loved you. I said, I appreciate you. You had an influence on in my life. And this is how you helped me. And I want to thank you for that. Would it be okay if I prayed for you? He nodded. And I said, before I pray for you, I want to tell you a story. And I told him the gospel, how Jesus came and loved us. And how that he would forgive us. I said, wouldn't you like to be forgiven and ask Christ to save you? And he closed his eyes. Everything up until then, he was responsive. And he closed his eyes. Not because he was sleepy. Not because he... He was tired, but because I don't want to have anything to do with this. Then I went ahead in my prayer, and I said, if you would like to do this. Then when I finished, I said, I appreciate the time. I just want to tell you I cared about you. And he opened his eyes, and he nodded at me. I did his funeral, too. But there was no applause. There was no hope. I'm going to ask you a question today. Have you, ever, have you ever received the gift of salvation? Because it's free. You don't have to do anything. You have to believe and confess and humbly submit yourself to God's authority in your life that He is the Savior and He will change your life. He'll forgive you. Would you bow your head with me this morning? Let's pray.